0: David the psalmist writes in Psalm 16 the prayer, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in me. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, he speaks of the Messiah, to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that we can join David in his declaration of trust and confidence for you are his refuge, his strong tower. There is no God beside you. We thank you that today as an assembly we can be privileged to receive your counsel through your word. And it is, as David has said, good counsel. Thank you that we can rest assured that we are at your right hand, the right hand which speaks of authority, and settled security. And so I pray in this assembly hour that we will rejoice as we ought to because of everything you are and everything we have become in you. And though sinful, we also rejoice in the fact that that is not a barrier between us and you. Only in that fellowship which I pray in this hour will become past tense. Those who believe will become rededicated in their conviction and, and their commitment to you. And those who do not know you, this hour would become yours forever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I took a quick trip this past summer to Kitty Hawk. It happens to be, of course, the place where a monument stands celebrating mankind's first flight in what would become known as an airplane. Two sons, brothers of a Protestant pastor, had solved the riddle of flight. They had figured out a thing called wing warping, a system that manipulated the, the edges of the wings, thereby allowing and using the wind to rise or descend, to turn or fly straight. The record recorded that on December 17th, 1903, Orville Wright won the toss of the coin over his brother Wilbur, climbed aboard their homemade craft, which had been created back in their bicycle shop back home. The airplane then coasted down the sandbar on a wooden rail and then rose into the air for all of 12 seconds. It traveled 120 feet. A hundred and twenty feet. And it made history. In fact, the next time you go to the Raleigh-Durham International Airport, you'll see outside the parking deck there on the grass what looks like just modern art. It's actually a dedication to this flight. The, The lighted portion of the sculpture represents the distance of that first flight which took place, of course, in North Carolina, which we can now claim with all humility, as if we had something to do with it. While Marcia and I were there at this historic event, I picked up the 500-page biography of these two boys, simply entitled The Bishop's Boys. It catalogs the invention of these very creative engineers and the way they tackled the mysteries and unraveled them, and then the years they spent in court fighting for their patents as people tried to take them away. One of the things that intrigued me, as I read uh, their biography, was the fact that their father was originally the one who had said to them, God never intended man to fly. He really never supported their efforts all that much. They thought they were dabbling in something that really wouldn't make any money or make much of a difference. But six years later, after that first flight at Kitty Hawk... Father climbed on board. Orville was at the controls. They would circle a field, staying aloft for seven minutes and a few odd seconds. The boys had been concerned about uh, their father's reception of their invention firsthand. Never really said much about it, even though by now the boys were famous and their invention world-renowned. I love the fact, though, that even though he never asked to fly, he did on this occasion... And at one point during the flight, their 81 year old father leaned close to his son's ear and shouted above the combined roar of the engine and propellers these words Higher, Orville, higher. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. Thank you, Dad. You redeemed yourself. Let's go higher. So great. Now on a 90-foot hill stands a 60-foot high monument to the memory of these boys and their invention, which in many ways did change our world forever. I think monuments are a great idea. I think memorials are wonderful. It's good to set aside seasons, dates, establish some structures that cause us to remember. Like Thanksgiving, a time originally set aside by the governor of Massachusetts to thank God for his providence. Would that governors today would call their states to thank God for his providence? And we've added to that day other days. In fact, our country's dotted with memorials and calendar events dedicated to moments long ago, not all of them, wonderful days to remember but important to remember, the Holocaust, a memorial that perhaps you've been through, the sacrifice of our veterans, the efforts of past presidents like Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln are worth remembering. These are, are special days and beautiful monuments. In fact, I, I'm, I'm under the strong conviction that they, they tend to give our past due significance and they give our present needed perspective. There are moments worth remembering. The last few paragraphs of what the Jews refer to as the scroll of Esther, are nothing more or less than the establishment of a Jewish Thanksgiving day. Esther and Mordecai are not about to allow the Jews to forget what God has done. And future generations that may, because we tend to forget, overlook the providence of God. And, and, And I want you to know that what they established 500 years before the birth of Christ is still being celebrated to this day. It's called the Feast of Purim. Now if you'll turn back to Esther, chapter 9, I'll I'll hop and skip around a bit with the text that we have left, the last few paragraphs. You'll notice that the memorial began really as a spontaneous celebration. In fact, verse 17 of chapter 9 tells us that, you know, after all the fighting stopped, the Jews defended their lives against those who hated them. Rescued from certain death, the, the feasting begins. The war was over. The latter part of verse 17, note there, Ezra, who is the writer, comments that, that it's just feasting and rejoicing. And, and basically what happens is it, it, it just spontaneously broke out all around uh, the kingdom. The war was over. Lives were spared. It was, it was literally bedlam combined with celebration. Like the celebration that spilled out onto the streets that I've read about and seen pictures after the news hit the airwaves that World War II was over. It just ended. People spilled out into the streets dancing and laughing and hugging each other. Total strangers. Didn't matter. Perhaps you've seen that classic photograph of, of, of the crowd that spilled the, into Times Square just after the news was delivered and all the hubbub A sailor, dressed in his uniform and his hat, grabbed a young nurse in his arms who'd just come from the hospital and planted a big one on her. And that was all right. Total strangers. It was all right for two reasons. One, because the war was over, and two, because she wasn't my daughter. It was okay. We frankly can't imagine the euphoria. Maybe you've lived through it of a war that was now over, and you've survived. Mordecai defines what will become a holiday tradition. Look at verse 21, he's obliging them in one of several letters that he and Esther will be involved in writing, but he's obliging them to celebrate the fourteenth day of the month Adar, which corresponds to our month of March the fifteenth day of the same month annually. Why? Why? Why do we want to celebrate? Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. was actually two days of celebration out around the perimeter of the kingdom it would be on March 14th. inside the walled cities it would be the 15th because you remember they had that one extra day of fighting which took place as the Jews defended themselves against their enemies so so what you've got here what you have here is Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled into one celebration this is their day of deliverance and the scroll of Esther thus becomes a national monument, as it were, to Jewish deliverance. And the Feast of Purim becomes a national holiday. In fact, I I found it interesting in my study that during World War II, the Nazis absolutely hated any mention of the book of Esther. For obvious reasons. In fact, one historian recorded this little side note, that if a Jew arrived at one of the concentration camps in the possession of any fragment or the entire book of Esther, that Jew was immediately put to death. They wanted no message of hope to come in here. They didn't want any hint of deliverance whispered among those who were marked for death inside these death camps. And still I discovered that many of the inmates of Auschwitz and Dachau and Treblinka produced written copies of the book of Esther from memory and then huddled together, reading it quietly in secret during the feast days of Purim. So convicting to me to think that the backdrop would be a concentration camp and that would be the context for remembering clinging to hope, tenacious hope in an invisible God. Well, as I've studied this book with you over these last few months, I have found in the book of Esther wonderful analogies and illustrations of the gospel. And without torturing the text I want to spell out for you today what I'm going to simply call the gospel according to Esther. Sort of recap and refresh on this, our last day of exposition from this book. It's a gospel which leads ultimately to helping us remember our deliverance from eternal death and life. This eternal reversal. So let me give you five, six, seven, I don't know, we might have gotten up to eight or ten in the last hour. We don't have any reason to stop this hour. (laughs) Lunch is overrated, don't you think? (laughs) Number one, a commoner becomes a queen. I love this truth that struck me at the very outset of chapter one and into chapter two, the fact that a commoner (laughs) could become a queen. For the first time in Persian history, from what we know, The king reverses centuries of tradition and allows the crown to rest on the head of a common peasant, an orphan, a foreigner, the child of exiles, becomes the bride of the king. Is that great or what? We fallen sons of Adam and fallen daughters of Eve, as C.S. Lewis so poetically described us. Given full rights and privileges as if we were of the same biological family. Adopted to sonship, Paul wrote, through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. And then if you can imagine it, that's not the ending of it, it is a future uh, for us of elevation and promotion and the crowning of us as the bride of Christ. Our future destiny is to reign with him throughout a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And then beyond that, to reign with him throughout the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. See, I, I needed to remind myself today, and I did in preparation for today, that that I wasn't going to be preaching to commoners. I would be preaching to royalty. I'm not preaching to peasants. I'm preaching to princes and princesses who are destined to become kings and queens co-reigning with Christ, what happened to Esther effectively will happen to you and to me. There's a coming day of final and ultimate reversal, isn't there? One day you're going to lay aside the common clothes of mortality and put on the clothing of immortality. One day you're going to move out of Houses made with bricks and sticks and plaster and plastic and metal into homes made out of jewels set upon shimmering gold. One day you're going to lay down your burdens of failure and imperfections for the last time and pick up a glorified body perfected in holiness forever. One day you're going to put aside and away sorrow and sadness, and enter his courts with thanksgiving, fully, perfectly, totally. A day is coming, ladies and gentlemen, when you'll put off fear and uncertainty as you speak to your invisible king, to that day when you look directly without hesitation or cowardice or insecurity and with perfect love, communicate to that one who is your betrothed king. That gets me excited. It's pretty good, but you need to practice that, okay, for next Sunday, (laughs) because the time is coming. I'll tell you about it in a moment. You've been chosen, we all together, commoners, common people, to be wedded to the king. The second analogy that strikes me from this gospel of Esther is bound up in this edict of death. The king, as you know, has allowed wicked Haman to publish a decree of death. It is an irrevocable edict of death. So likewise it strikes me that all of humanity is under an irrevocable edict of death. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to what? Die. And after that the what? Judgment, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then you're going to face God. I'm also struck by the fact that the Jewish people during the days of Esther were not condemned to die. Follow this carefully. Because of what they'd done. They were condemned to die because of who they were. They were Jews. Simple as that. That alone carried the death penalty in the kingdom of Persia. They didn't have to commit some long list of crimes against the crown to come underneath this edict. They simply had to belong to the Jewish race. So today, all of humanity is under the edict of death. You don't have to do bad things. You know, the the dirty dozen, the bad nine, whatever, to get underneath the edict. The truth is the moral man and the murderer will experience the same thing, death. The good man and the bad man stand shoulder to shoulder in this experience. The educated and the wealthy don't have a leg up over and against the poor and the illiterate. The graveyards around this city, state, country, and world are silent testimonies to the impartiality of this edict. It touches us all. God signed into law the edict. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve in that original fall. To the New Testament era when Paul delivered again. Restating the truth in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is what? Death. The paycheck. For simply belonging to a fallen sinful human race is death. The statistics are staggering. It is one out of every one who dies. Another analogy in this edict of death is seen in the fact that under this edict, the Jews were unable to defend themselves. They're literally defenseless. They, they, They can't stay the reach of this edict. And the Persian pony express you remember they galloped throughout the kingdom with the news that effectively said if you belong to the jewish people you are condemned to die there was no hope so also the edict of death has been delivered to our world it is written on the heart of every human being and the older they get like me the more they contemplate that unalterable fact that barring the rapturing of the church away by the coming of Christ I am going to die. There isn't any secret way out. There isn't any escape clause. I can't call anybody and try to get out of it. The edict of death is carried out on that guy back there. I mean, uh, on, on us all, okay? <laughs> Everybody reach for your phones. Turn them off quick. <laughs> the ushers are coming to retrieve that person and send him out. <laughs> there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> all right. And you know, I read recently of Oliver Winchester and his wife, Sarah, who lived in New Haven, Connecticut, Oliver Winchester was the inventor of the rifle named after himself, the first truly repeating rifle. It was put to great use by the Union Army during the Civil War. Government and private contracts made this man and his wife wealthy, almost beyond belief. Four years after they were married, they gave birth to a little girl they named Annie, the baby died when about 2 weeks old and Sarah was so shattered she withdrew into herself and nearly lost her mind. Hardly able to recuperate from that, Oliver, her husband, contracted tuberculosis and died. Sarah became heir to this vast fortune, but no amount of money could lessen her her grief. At a friend's suggestion, and it was an unfortunate suggestion, Sarah sought to contact her deceased husband through a spiritist medium, necromancer. During the session, the medium informed her that her husband was in the room to deliver through her a message to Sarah. The message was simply this the family was cursed. Because of the invention of the rifle. And the spirits were seeking vengeance. The message also said that she needed to move to a remote location. And and build a house for the spirits that had fallen. Before this weapon. He also told her through this medium. That if she never stopped building the house. She would live. And if she stopped she would die. Sarah immediately sold her home in New Haven, Connecticut, moved west with her fortune, bought a home that was under construction, sitting on 162 acres of land, and immediately threw away the building plans. And for 36 years, the construction crew built and rebuilt, altered, changed, Constructed one section of the house after another. The sound of hammers and saws never ceased. Railway cars brought in fresh supplies, and every morning Sarah would meet with the foreman to sketch out some new addition. Rooms would be added to rooms, I have read. Wings added to wings, levels turned into towers and peaks, staircases that led to nowhere, doors opening to nothing, closets opened to blank walls. Hallways even doubled back upon themselves as the house became a vast, expensive maze designed to both, she said, house and confuse the evil spirits that tormented her mind. Sarah Winchester depleted her fortune building this vast, confusing, sprawling mansion. And then on the night of September 4th, 1922, after yet another conference with a medium in her seance room, she climbed into bed and died in her sleep at the age of 83. She had believed that as long as she continued building, she would stay alive. And she was wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, mankind, frankly, is busy, isn't it? We're busy with hammers and saws and enterprising and entertaining and, and playing and marrying and eating and parenting and educating. And working, and investing. And for the unbeliever, all of it is an attempt to drown out the edict of the inevitable. I don't want to think about it. In fact, one journal article I read just this week, very frankly, admitted that the health industry is passionate about one thing, and it wasn't to help us live healthier lives. It was interesting, in the headlines it said, it's an all-out attempt to help us avoid death. And it's not going to work. I'm all for being healthy. To a point. (laughs) Mankind is racing around, but it is merely racing to keep its appointment with death. Because this is the king's edict. The soul that sins shall surely die, the Bible says. But then comes a ray of hope. There is another analogy in the gospel of Esther. It is what we'll simply call the intercession of Esther. After three days of solitude, Esther suddenly appears without any introduction. She's suddenly standing in the presence of the king. She intercedes on behalf of her people. She willingly risks her life to save the life of her own people and if I die, well then I die. I discovered that many Jewish rabbis and scholars have believed that the three days of solitude experienced by Esther are mysteriously linked to the three days of Jonah inside the whale and for those of us who believe the gospel of Christ we know that is the sign of the three days and nights in the tomb followed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jewish tradition has taught for centuries that the dead this is what the Bible teaches this is Jewish tradition that the dead will come to life three days after the start of the final judgment and they get that from a misinterpretation of Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2 which reads after two days he will revive us on the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence But what is correctly interpreted from that text is this wonderful picture of the coming and the dying and the resurrecting of Jesus Christ. After three days in the tomb, after experiencing the wrath of God the Father on the cross, and here's where the analogy breaks down. Not risking his life, but giving over his life. He now stands before The Father petitioning on our behalf. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote of this same gospel analogy, and I quote him, translated from German to read in English. On the third day after judgment transpired on the cross, Jesus Christ arose, guaranteeing safety to enter God's presence to all who reach out in faith to touch the scepter of the King, which is in the shape of a cross. It's true, isn't it? The Father gladly receives the petition of the Son based upon his cross work and intercession on our behalf so that Jesus could say, by the way, no one comes to the Father except by me. There is another Analogy in the gospel according to Esther and it would be then this edict of life. Earlier I quoted a verse. Many of you knew it. I even heard children saying it. But I only quoted the first part of it. For the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the irrevocable edict. But the verse doesn't stop there, does it? What's the very next word? But. The wages of sin is death, but what a wonderful, wonderful word that is. What a great conjunction. But. It changes everything, doesn't it? In fact, if you're talking to someone, what comes after they say, but, is what really matters. Your boss calls you in at the end of the day and says, you know, I just want to tell you that... uh, that was a great job. But now you're really listening. Your girlfriend calls you and says, I really enjoy being with you in Allah. Uh, but you know what that means? You're free to move about the country, right? <laughs> Your child's elementary school teacher calls you at home. And you, Mom, you pick up the phone and the teacher says, we really like having little Hiroshima in the classroom with us. (laughs) But the devastation. But, man, I hated to hear my mother when I was in fourth grade pick up that phone and hear her say after the phone was ringing, hello. Well, hello, Mrs. Jolly. (laughs) I knew for me because Mrs. Jolly was a big tattletale that it was an edict of death for me. Maybe it's a client who calls you up and says, you know, I've really enjoyed doing business with you these last five years, but maybe it's a doctor who calls you and says, you know, everything looks good, but... Listen, whatever comes after that little word matters... A whole lot more than anything that came before it, right? In fact, the latter has the power to nullify the former. And in this case, this little word becomes a hinge word upon which eternity swings. But the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Death, but life. An irrevocable edict of death, but an opportunity for everlasting life. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his even now interceding for us. Jesus Christ said it this way, and I love it, the way he summarized both edicts. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will live even though he dies. John eleven twenty five. 25. In other words, none of us can avoid the edict of death. It is irrevocable. But all of us can, by faith in Jesus Christ, our Messiah, experience the nullifying eternally. Nullifying edict of death through this edict of life. And when that comes into your life, when he comes, you have peace. The battle is over. In fact, if you'd skip ahead, look at chapter 10. The last verse is describing to us the the glory of Mordecai and his new position of influence and power. We're told in the latter part of verse 3, note that, that he was seeking the good of his people. And note this and one who he was one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. The one who spoke for the welfare. Literally, that phrase reads The one who spoke shalom. The Hebrew word. The one who spoke. Peace. What a great way to summarize the interceding work of both Esther and Mordecai on behalf of their people. What a great way to to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ in that it brings peace. Now listen, there isn't peace anywhere on the planet, at least for very long, except in one place, inside the heart of of the person who's been redeemed by Christ and reconciled to God. I don't mean in that you have some never-ending state of ecstasy or some kind of happy thrill every day you climb out of bed and it just gets better and better. No, I mean peace. Settled, secured, reconciled status. God is no longer your enemy against whom you fight. He is now your friend. He's your friend. All well, because of Christ, and we sing the words of that hymn before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence Depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him, Christ, and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. It is the gospel of Christ that brings peace. Can I tell you, dear flock, that these last few months have been so fruitful? I am hearing reports from so many different places within our ministry of of reconciled, redeemed individuals placing their faith in Christ. One gentleman in our church told me just a couple of weeks ago, that he worked in New York for Wall Street. Financially and professionally successful, his office looked out over the Twin Towers. He told me, as we sat in my office, that on 9-11 he saw everything. He saw both planes come and crash. He saw the towers crumble. This successful, unbelieving middle-aged businessman eventually made it home and he and his wife decided that life as they knew it wasn't really worth living. This dear Chinese couple raised in Buddhism said they decided to move and they sold everything and moved to North Carolina. They began to search for spiritual answers. Their religion hadn't helped them and so they decided to search out ours, and they went from church to church and even more churches. Finally, this past year, they visited here, and I asked him. I interrupted him. I said, well, why did you stop visiting? Why did you stay here? And he said, well, I couldn't describe it any other way than saying when, I, when we came in here and we sat down, we sensed peace they listened intently after a few months sitting perhaps where you're seated at the end of the service when we closed in prayer he gave his life and heart to Christ and his wife began taking Bible study and growing in her understanding of the gospel we prayed together in my office for her Uh, just last Sunday he came down to introduce her to me and she said I'm ready to place my faith in Christ and we prayed and she did just that A couple of weeks ago our sports ministries director told me how he had just partnered with another local church that shared our passion for disciple making and they had they had organized a a dozen teams of adult men for a flag football tournament that's as close to organized murder as you can ever establish (laughs) Most of the men were unaffiliated with any church, and that was the the reason they did it. Following the tournament, he told me one of the leaders gave his testimony of personal faith in Jesus Christ, explaining the gospel, explaining the claims of Christ. At the end of the program, 22 men accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that great? Praise God for that. I want you to know as well... We're coming to the end of one of the most interesting and fruitful greenhouse classes. About 30 so far are ready to state their identification with Jesus Christ through baptism. And we've had several individuals pray during the semester to receive Christ as their Savior. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel brings peace. Not externally. It doesn't bring an easy life. In fact, it makes it harder, doesn't it? Because now the stakes are so higher, so much higher. Now you wrestle with sin. Now you struggle with conviction. Now you search the scriptures to define for you the nature of this invisible God. But you know when you pillow your head there is peace between you and God. I want to give you another analogy, and I know we're getting close to time here, but I want you to look at verse 26 there in chapter 9. This is an enduring reminder of deliverance. Let me say a few things about Purim. This refers to the letters written by both Esther and Mordecai. Notice verse 26, therefore they call these days Purim, after the name of Pur, And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. Verse 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city and these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. In other words, let's make sure we never forget. Let's build a monument. Let's make a memorial to the providence of God in our deliverance. And I love the fact that they were probably talking, well, what do you think we ought to call this thing? I don't know. What do you think? They came up with maybe some names. And it was, well, let's call it, ironically, after That hateful event. Let's call it Purim. From Pur, which means lot. Dice. Let's remind ourselves as we celebrate of Haman who threw the dice to find the most propitious day to wipe us off the planet. Let's celebrate the feast days of Purim. Days of great joy. And in that we discover the wonderful use of this name. In fact, we as English people use it. We refer to the lottery. We refer to our allotment in life. We talk about our lot in life, don't we? David, the psalmist, used the same word found here in Esther when he wrote, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. In other words, even the roll of the dice is determined by the sovereignty of God. There's no such thing as chance. There's not one stray Adam that finds itself outside the ultimate purposes of God. So because of that, the days of Purim could become days of celebration and joy. And the Jews gather to this day to hear the reading of the Esther scroll that's our plan next Lord's Day. I'll we'll edit it down to about 10 minutes. When the Jews get to chapter 3, one author said, Wildness breaks out. That's what's going to happen in here. <laughs> the audience delights in, at the sound of Haman's name and booing and hissing and stamping their feet. Many will write Haman on the soles of their, of their shoes as they stamp their feet. This is what we're going to do. This is about as charismatic as we're going to be allowed to be. Okay, (laughs) Then we'll get back to normal. They share gifts, and we've got a gift for you. And we're not going to tell you everything, but we're going to do this next time. Let me quickly wrap up our study of this wonderful book with a a couple, two or three principles, overarching truths. If you asked me to summarize the entire book, this would be it. Number one. The providence of God reflects His grace and ought to be remembered. Ought to be remembered. We tend to build memorials in our minds to bad things. Bad days. Bad relationships. Bad decisions. Let's take time to remember good things. Good decisions. Good circumstances. The good hand of God upon us. So maybe it's starting a journal for you or maybe making a list. Maybe the next time you talk to a friend that's finding something in the day that is good. The truth is the enemy of our souls loves to taunt us with past failures and past disappointments, past wrongs, Past calamities, turning, as one author said, our lives into one dark, long, dark tunnel with no light. It is the truth that brings a light. We got a letter a couple of weeks ago from a woman who had written us, listening to us on the radio. She said, I had decided to take my life. She said, I had experienced years of one tragedy after another. In fact, she had 21 major surgeries in a row. And then she said, my mother died, my last living relative. And even though I was a believer, I was in a tunnel. There was no hope. And I decided to end my life. She said, I got up on that fateful, fateful day and I turned on the radio and, and I caught your program. And it changed my mind. So, this letter wrote Would you get the news to that preacher that I've decided to live? Gospel brings light. And we ought to build monuments to those kinds of events. Has it ever occurred to you? And I thought about it as I was reading the biography of, of, of Orville and Wilbur. It occurred to me that monuments were never built at places where they failed to fly. <laughs> I know that's deep, and, and it's, it's close to lunch. In fact, it's, it's getting late. But I, have, you know, have you thought about that? You don't go visit something, and this is where Orville and Wilbur tried to fly and failed. Where's the picnic? No. You have a monument where they succeeded. Why is it that we build monuments where we fail? and we make them out of granite. Where God allows us good success, we etch those in dust, sand. The providence of God reflects His grace, and we we ought to do a better job remembering it. Secondly, the providence of God is spiritually discerned, although widely ignored. You go to the last chapter of the book of Esther and verse 1. And it tells us what happened after all these wonderful events. Look there. Now, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute, that is a text, on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. <laughs> after all that's happened, remarkable deliverance, he discovers his wife is a Jewess. He's introduced to a God who so wonderfully redeems them and delivers them that many of the Persians... Become proselyte Jews. And the king's going, now what do I want to do next? How's my life going to change? I know I'll tax the people. That's it. There's no revival, no conversion, no impact. Yeah, the providence of God comes and goes and I don't even see it. Can we be like that? It's a challenging truth for all of us who claim the God of Esther as our Lord That we can go about life as usual. Missing one event after another where God's hand is at work. Oh, that God would, by His Spirit, wake us up and make us alert to not settle for the way the world talks. Isn't that a wonderful coincidence? Look at what just happened. No. God is continuing to move us and this world toward His final and ultimate purposes which please Him and fulfill his will. And I want to make one more, well, second to the last point. Esther had no idea when she won the crown that there was a greater issue ahead of her. Not a greater issue, but another issue, another event. It's easy to miss. She had no idea that God would bring about in his perfect timing the death of her husband who would be assassinated in order to bring to the throne Ahasuerus' son. A king, by the way, who would have a similar experience. See, one of his trusted officials will one day stand before him, going against court protocol, risking his own life because sadness is all over his face. A Jewish man by the name of Nehemiah. And the king would show him great favor The Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 2 that the queen was sitting with the king. That would have been highly unlikely. In fact, we've learned already from Persian history that it wasn't the practice of the Persian court to include the queen. The queen stayed in her quarters until she was summoned. To not do so would risk her own life. And she certainly didn't sit on a throne near the, the throne of the king, which has led others, including myself, To believe that this is a reference to the queen mother. The wife of the former king. Who would have been none other than Esther. And so when this Jewish man named Nehemiah stepped forward and asked the king for his favor. No doubt influenced by Esther. A Jewess. He said not only will I allow you to go but I'll give you a blank check. It's on me. (laughs) Esther's influence would continue 21 years later and influence the return of many of the exiles to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. My last principle. And I'll tell you, ahead of time, this takes us where we began. It takes us all the way back where we started. It's simply this. The providence of God is physically invisible, but it is ultimately invincible. At the end of the book, God is the hero. and He alone is deserving of all our praise. His providence has made certain of His promises. So like Charles Wesley I close with his hymn ye servants of God your master proclaim and tell out abroad his wonderful name that name all victorious Jesus extol his kingdom is glorious he rules over all Would you pray with me father thank you for the way you rule your world. Thank you for your providence that has built into your sovereign plan even the sin of mankind, for whom mankind will be responsible, but you have built that in knowing full well the implications. and It becomes your purpose to ultimately glorify yourself. When one day, not now, one day, when you make all things right and you make all things new, and we feel upon our brow the weight of something that even now we talk about but don't really expect a crown. In the meantime, Father, would you allow us to be more alert and by your Spirit more careful to see those little things we might call chances or coincidences as ultimately the hand of you who controls the lot of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen.